Hi, hello, you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and their pursuit of passion. Every week, we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that will help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and career. Today, we're following up on our last short ends episode, where I looked at what I called YouTube journalism. This week, I want to continue the conversation with two specific topics. First, media manipulation and documentary filmmaking, and second, emotional truth versus literal truth. Remember, you can support the show by subscribing to us in iTunes, then leaving a rating and review. You can also support the show by becoming a Daredreamer FM Premium member. For just under six bucks a month or sixty bucks a year, you get access to contract templates, ebooks, worksheets, bonus episodes, and even discounts on other products and services. Learn more at daredreamer.fm/join. Okay, on with the show. Earlier this year, news anchor and television personality Katie Kirk, executive to produce, starred in, and released a provocative documentary for the Epics Network, a documentary entitled Under the Gun, a film about the state of gun ownership in the U.S. But there is one clip in the documentary that caused quite a ruckus. Katie Kirk is venturing into the gun control controversy with a documentary called Under the Gun, but it's backfiring. I wanted to have an open mind. I wanted to understand the psyche of gun owners in this country and what they were afraid of. The Epics Network film shows Kirk interviewing members of a gun rights group, the Virginia Citizens Defense League. If there are no background checks for gun purchasers, how do you prevent felons or terrorists from purchasing a gun? But that sequence, with its eight seconds of stunned silence, was edited in a misleading way. Here's what actually happened. How do you prevent felons or terrorists from walking into, say, a licensed gun dealer and purchasing a gun? Well, one, if, if you're not in jail, you should still have your basic rights. And the conversation quickly continued. What well, the fact is we do have statutes both at the federal and state level. Virginia League President Philip Van Cleve, who was at the taping, said he was shocked. The problem was is that it made our members look like they were idiots, like they couldn't answer a basic, straightforward question. Now, it was actually the director of the film, Stephanie Sashtig, who made the call to have the film edited like this, and Katie and her team stood behind her. This kind of creative editing is not new to documentary filmmaking. In fact, documentarian and provocateur Michael Moore got similar grief in 2002 for his documentary, Bowling for Columbine, another documentary that addressed the issue of gun laws in America. Moore, who is no stranger to controversy himself, was under fire, no pun intended, for editing this segment of the film. I have only five words for you. From my cold, dead hands. Just 10 days after the Columbine killings, Despite the pleas of a community in mourning, Charlton Heston came to Denver and held a large pro-gun rally for the National Rifle Association. 
Good morning. Thank you all for coming and thank you for supporting your organization. Now, here's the thing. The two clips of Charlton Heston speaking are from two completely different speeches. The first part, where he says, from my cold dead hands, was from an NRA annual meeting a year later in Charlotte, North Carolina. The website HarleyLaw.net dissected Moore's film and compared it to the actual speech given by Heston to show how Moore's editing changes the theme of the speech to fit his message. Now, let me be absolutely clear. I am no fan of the NRA or gun rights organizations and lobbyists. I use these two examples because they just happen to represent two very specific and frankly egregious ways that truth can be manipulated to communicate just about anything you want. I don't care if you're on the left or the right, liberal or conservative, as a documentary filmmaker, I think it's imperative that you see your role in conveying truth as sacred. In today's day and age, when society is deeply cynical and it's never been easier to expose fraud and communicate instantly to the world, you only do your film and your cause, if you have one, a disservice when you manipulate media to convey a sort of relativistic truth, or maybe even a flat-out lie. But the truth is, the manipulation of media is also required in many cases to convey even absolute truths. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Short Ends, Truth in Media, Part 2. Believe it or not, the term documentary has its roots in the feature film Moana. No, I'm not talking about Disney's latest animated feature with an amazing score partially written by Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. No, I'm actually talking about a film that came out 90 years ago this past January. Robert Flaherty's 1926 docu-fictional account of Samoan people called Moana. According to Wikipedia, it was the Scottish filmmaker John Gerson who first coined the phrase documentary in his review of Flaherty's Moana for the New York Sun in February of that year. But was Flaherty's 1922 film, Nanook of the North, about the struggles of an Inuit man and his family, that often gets credited as the first commercially successful feature-length documentary film, even if that term was not used until four years later. Now, nearly 30 years prior to Nanook of the North, Auguste and Louis Lumiere, often credited as the fathers of cinema, were creating 50-second films which, for all intents and purposes, were mini-documentaries. You may recall Seattle Film Institute Executive Director David Shulman referencing this fact in our History of Cinema series. The, the, the guy in France who can only pay a few centimes can't travel to India, right? So, so the Lumieres now have this camera and this projector, but how are they going to monetize it? They have to have something to show. Well, let's show people what life is like in India. Let's show them a flood. So the Lumiere brothers send documentary crews all over the world to get footage that the average French person can't see. Despite the short films by the Lumiere brothers, it's Flaherty's film that comes up on any Google search about the first documentary. However, one of the controversies surrounding the film and its designation as a quote-unquote documentary is that Flaherty staged many of the scenes in the film. He even used a roofless igloo in some of the scenes in order to accommodate the equipment of the time. The film's namesake, Nanook, was really named Elikajilak, or something like that. I'm sure I'm butchering the name. And his wife in the film wasn't really his wife. And despite the fact that Alec Kajialak used the gun when he hunted, Flaherty had him use spears and other weapons of his ancestors. 
So we learned that as far back as the so-called first documentary, we had manipulation, sleight of hand, and visual trickery involved in the making of documentaries. So that begs the question, what is truth? And in particular, what is truth in media? In philosophical circles, relative truth versus absolute truth is a recurring theme for debate and discussion. In today's postmodern society, particularly among the younger generation, the idea of relative truth is practically synonymous with political correctness and tolerance. Documentary filmmaker Errol Morris, renowned for such films as The Thin Blue Line, Fog of War, and Standard Operating Procedure, and many, many more, said this in an interview for the Columbia Journalism Review. You know, someone comes up to you and they say, well, I'm a postmodernist. I really don't care about truth. Truth is subjective or there are all kinds of different versions of truth, your truth, my truth, someone else's truth. And then so you say to them, well, then it doesn't matter to you who pulled the trigger. <laughs> doesn't matter to you whether someone committed murder or not or someone in jail is innocent or not. That's just a matter of personal opinion. I believe our intuitions strongly are it does matter. It matters a great deal. Morris is one of the most celebrated, respected, and revered documentary filmmakers of our modern day. The aforementioned Thin Blue Line was largely credited with leading to the release of Randall Adams for the shooting death of Officer Robert Wood. With over two dozen investigative and provocative documentaries under his belt, and with a pre-filmmaking career as a detective, Morris's insight into this idea of truth is one worth considering as filmmakers. I am particularly intrigued with his use of reenactments in his documentary filmmaking. Even before I became a fan of his work, this was something I have instinctively done as a filmmaker myself, going back to my early days as a wedding videographer. In fact, the process of documenting a wedding is one in which this idea of truth comes to a head and is itself one of great debate. About eight years ago, I filmed a Q&A session with two of the world's foremost wedding and lifestyle photographers, Joe Busink and Dennis Reggie. Joe has filmed the weddings of such celebrities as Kelsey Grammer, Christina Applegate, and singer Christina Aguilera. Dennis is another high-profile photographer known for being the go-to photographer for the Kennedy family and other captains of industry. Dennis is often credited with being the person who popularized the phrase photojournalistic wedding photography. He is extremely passionate about what he calls true photojournalism and is not shy of letting people know his feelings. Here's an excerpt from that Q&A I filmed and hosted where Dennis was asked about the future of photography. If you believed all the verbiage that we hear and read on websites, you'd swear that every photographer was a photojournalist because the, the phrase is used pretty freely. And that's, you know, the same if you happen to collect antiques, which I like antiques. You know, sometimes I'm driving on the road and I'll just stop and say, well, it said antiques. And of course you go there and you find out that it's really, it's, it's Fred Sanford. Or it, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's junk, right? It's kind of used furniture. So the word antique is sort of overused, and so is the phrase wedding photojournalism. So I, I think where wedding photography can be from where I sit is even more real than of the moment. I, I like to talk about and think about photography done by the consummate professional who considers himself or herself that witness that I described earlier, the finder, the right brain, intuitive anticipator of moments, who doesn't even speak, who doesn't eat, drink, sit, talk, interact with the guests, who's there on a mission to blend in, dress the part of, of a guest, 
hold cameras down, move about looking for moments, and documenting them in real time without ever speaking, without the subject being aware, because I think that's where the greatness of photography is. You look at the work of Cartier-Bresson, it's moments on the street that just happen, and I, I'm all about reality. So if, if you're asking where I think photography can be, and maybe I kind of wish it was, I think we're in a good place now. We're certainly better than we were 20 years ago, but I'd love to see reality continue to, to be there. So where can photography be? Photography can continue to provide, I believe, uh, that option to those folks who insist on being followed, found, and documented, and not made into an illusion that really didn't exist. Hallelujah for nonfiction photography. That's what I would say. Have you really captured the truth of a wedding if you pose the bride and groom and Photoshop the images to the point where they look like cinematic one-sheets from a Tolkien movie? Interestingly enough, Errol Morris actually has a comment about this as well. Not specifically weddings, but photography in general. Here's an excerpt from an interview he did for The Guardian. A photograph, among other things, decontextualizes, I'll use the fancy word, it decontextualizes everything. You don't see above, you don't see below, you don't see to the left or to the right, you don't see before or after. You see this swatch of reality, two-dimensional reality, that's been torn out of the fabric of the world. Um, and the only way we can know what we're looking at is to investigate. I have this conceit, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. That if you want to understand photography, if you want to understand the meaning of photographs, the best way to do it is to seize on little details and try to understand them as a way of addressing much, much, much larger questions about truth in photography, about the nature of posing, about how we get a picture of the world from a photograph. All of those questions. Now, imagine if you will a bride and groom at the table with the wedding cake. They're gearing up for the cutting of the cake and waiting for everyone to gather around. As is often the case at a wedding, someone starts clanging on his champagne glass, urging the couple to kiss. Another joins in, then another. The groom takes his bride by the waist with one hand and ever so gracefully caresses her cheek with the other. He then plants one of the most passionate kisses a man can give a woman. The kind of kiss that raises your temperature and makes one guest yell out, Get a room! The guests all chuckle. The wedding photographer moves in to grab his shot, a perfectly composed portrait of passion. But what you don't see in that photograph is that the four-year-old flower girl got up on her tippy toes and stuck her finger in the cake to sneak a bite while the bride and groom made out. The photographer sees this, but in an instant makes the decision to capture the romance and the passion instead. So he purposefully frames the shot so as not to see the flower girl. Did this photographer convey the truth? The photo he took really happened. The photo he has is dramatic. But if he had stepped back just three or four feet or widened his focal length, drama would have turned into comedy. In some cases, it would appear that the truth can indeed come in different flavors.
two of those flavors are what I call emotional truth versus literal truth. I'll use wedding videography this time to explain. There are two overriding schools of thought when it comes to editing a wedding video. You can create a straightforward edit of the day, laying out the event to happen in chronological order with no extensive effort to craft any kind of romantic or emotional narrative. You wind up with a two to three hour edit that is pretty much just a document of the day. And it's the kind of wedding video that only a close friend or a relative would particularly be moved by. I call this literal truth. However, you could also take that same footage and edit a tighter 20 to 45 minute edit that has non-linear storytelling, cinematic music, and the juxtaposition of audio and visuals to create what feels more like a narrative movie. Some of the shots may even be posed. Perhaps it opens with the audio from the father of the bride's toast over home movies of the bride as a little girl playing with her father. The vows of the ceremony may be laid over a montage of images throughout the day. What results is a work of art that would move almost anyone to tears and laughter. You create something that can make a total stranger feel the same emotion that their friends and family felt on that day. This is what I call emotional truth. In the long run, truth in media is actually pretty complicated. It's not always black and white. For a documentary filmmaker, it all comes down to the story you want to tell. Many documentaries, like the aforementioned Under the Gun and Bowling for Columbine, have very definite messages and biases, and as such, are shot and edited in a way to best convey those messages. There are some documentaries, like Joshua Oppenheimer's 2014 groundbreaking Act of Killing, that are relatively dispassionate. They just convey what you see and hear on the screen and let the subject matter speak for itself. Sometimes the storyteller would take artistic liberties to convey truth, even if those artistic decisions in and of themselves are not precisely what happened. I must admit that I'm guilty of that. Take my documentary short, Mix in America, the making of which was documented on this podcast earlier this year. There's a point in the story where my daughter says this. I remember in middle school, I was in art class, and the girl across from me, all of a sudden she stopped her work, she leaned across the table, and she looked at me and she said, don't be offended, but you don't really talk black. And I'm like, I don't really know how to respond to that. I mean, what does that mean? In the visuals, we see a little blonde girl play the role of the girl who says, you don't talk black. But in reality, the girl who said this to my daughter was Asian. Here's the original audio from the interview. I remember in middle school, I was in art class, and the girl across from me, she was Asian, and she, all of a sudden, she stopped her work, she leaned across the table, and she looked at me and she said, don't be offended, but you don't really talk black. Now, if you follow the making of this film, you know that there were many things I wanted to do originally with this film that, due to varying circumstances, I wasn't able to do. My original plan was indeed to have one of Imani's Asian friends play this role. But that just never happened. And by the time I filmed this reenactment, I had to use what was available. Ergo, Asian girl becomes little blonde girl. But if I'm honest, in many ways, seeing a little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl say this line has a much stronger effect than if another person of color, albeit Asian, said the line. 
It doesn't take away from the ignorance of the comment or how it made my daughter feel. And in truth, she's had her fair share of both white and Asian people say similar things to her. But in that moment, that visual of the blonde girl does play different than if it were an Asian girl. I also did it later in the film when Imani talks about other dark-skinned black girls who like her quote-unquote good hair. Imani comments that her friends have the most beautiful skin, so it's like a trade-off. But it's kind of funny. It's like something that they really like. But then I look at them and I'm going, you have the most beautiful skin. Like some of my black friends that... Like, they say that they want their skin to be lighter. And I think dark skin is just really, like, it's so pretty. Their skin is very smooth, and a lot of black girls I know, they don't have any acne at all, and I have it pretty bad. So, there you go. So it's like, they got skin, and I got hair. They don't know what they're saying When they say they'd rather I did have footage of a darker-skinned girl from one of Imani's teen birthday parties that I could have used as B-roll for this part of the film. But I didn't use that footage. Want to guess why? You got it. That girl had acne. She obviously wasn't one of the ones with smooth skin Imani was talking about. Which makes sense since the audio from the interview was a few years before I had filmed that party. Dark-skinned girls do get acne. And sometimes even 40-plus-year-old dark-skinned men get a few acne bumps now and then. Just saying. So instead, I use footage from Pito and Yongo's Oscar acceptance speech. Again, it doesn't take away from the truth of my daughter's story, but I did make a conscious choice to not illustrate a bigger truth that some of my daughter's friends notwithstanding, dark-skinned girls do get acne. You might not necessarily know that truth coming away from this documentary. Bottom line, are you as a documentarian or journalist being ethical and forthright in your desire to communicate the spirit of what is true? In the process of conveying those stories, it's possible you could cross the line and render your work untrustworthy or just straight up propaganda. I'm sure Michael Moore would argue that despite the fact that he juggled around various Charlton Heston speeches to create that controversial sequence, that sequence conveys the spirit of the truth about what the NRA stands for and Moore's belief that what they do is harmful. As a doc filmmaker, what you cut out of your story, either in the framing and composition or in the editing, is often just as important as what you show. If you are just in your pursuit of capturing the spirit of the truth, I think you have nothing to fear and should use all of the creativity and resources at your disposal to tell the best, most powerful story possible. But given the nature of social media and technology today, be prepared to defend your choices and have your integrity challenged if and when the truth of your creative choices are revealed. I've always been fascinated by the idea that there is a correct way to tell a story or there's a correct way to make a film. It's so stupid, it's hard to believe that people really believe it, but they do, that if you use available light and you use a handheld camera and you don't move anything into or out of the frame, the truth will emerge. Kind of an epistemological meat grinder. You just add the appropriate ingredients 
and truth results. Well, that makes no sense. It really makes no sense at all. It's a pursuit, it's a quest. You, you investigate, you look, you think, you study in the hope that you can learn something about the world. But to think that truth is connected with style, it's like saying, you know, I'm gonna use a certain quality of tile in my shower and it will become more truthful as a result. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Who could have ever thought that it did? Radio Film School is a production of Daydreamer FM. We're a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows to meditation and health to podcast production. This and other great shows can be found at podcastica.com. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. And I want to take this time to give a very special thank you to our co-producer, Chris Huslidge. For the past year, he's been a tremendous help in putting this podcast together. And he's gotten to a point where he needs to move on and work on some other projects. I thank you, Chris, for your work and dedication and wish you the best of luck. If you like what we're doing with the show and you're interested in seeing how the secret sauce is made and being involved in the telling of some amazing stories of filmmakers and creatives, shoot me an email at radiofilmschool at daredreamer.fm. The audio clips from the various Ira Morris documentaries were used adhering to the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practices and fair use by the Center for Media and Social Impact. You can find links to the video clips used on the blog post for this episode. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe in iTunes. Your subscription helps the show get found. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. Another great way you can support the show is by becoming a Daredreamer FM Premium member. Premium membership helps keep the show going and putting out great weekly content. For a monthly price of about the same as an HD iTunes rental for an Errol Morris documentary, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts, and other great products and services. Go to daredreamer.fm join to learn more. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamerfm where I curate links and stories about filmmaking, photography, social media marketing, and branding. If you just want to stay notified with what's up with the show, follow us at Radio Film School. If you like this episode, share it on Twitter or email it to a friend you know needs to hear this message. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. You're listening to Daredreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Podcast to go.